Good evening. Uh, the topic for this, for tonight is Rudolf Kastner. <laughs> that was def- uh, not for, not for the audio recording. <laughs> Rudolf Kastner is a very complicated topic because it takes us in a, a variety of directions um, and a bunch of different places from Romania, Hungary, to Germany the land of Israel and beyond, spanning from the 1940s all the way to the present time. The story isn't over yet. Who is Rudolf Kastner? He's born in 1906 in Klausenburg, which at that time was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, the town of Kluge, or Klausenburg, becomes part of Romania in 1918, and later is restored to Hungary in the Second Vienna Award of 1940. So the town is under a shifting administration over the years. Kastner's father was a pious Jew, mother less so. Mother insisted that he go to a good school. Kastner had a very uh, you know, sharp mind, good with languages. He spoke ten languages. He wanted to go into politics. His mother wanted him to be a lawyer, so he became a lawyer. <laughs> His brother went to, on Aliyah to Israel uh, in the 1920s. He was going to follow, but did not, because his father died when he was 22 and had to take care of the mother. Rudolf Kastner was a Zionist and had been so since his teenage years, ever since experiencing discrimination under the numerous clauses, the discriminatory laws concerning a university entrance. And he felt that if Jews are a discriminated class, then they have to fight for themselves under their own banner. And... He was a writer. He wrote for the Hungarian Zionist newspaper when it was published in Klausenberg, and he would continue to do so even after the war years when it was published in Tel Aviv. And that would be his job until his dying day. It wasn't a Klausenberg or Chassid. It was not a Klausenberg or Chassid. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> well, not Chassidim. No, no. No. Okay. Uh, in 1940, when... The war is already in high gear. Jews need to escape from those regions of Europe that are occupied by the Nazis. And they're willing to go anywhere that is not occupied by the Nazis, even if those areas are under regimes that are allied with the Nazis. Better to be under Hungarian anti-Semites and Romanian anti-Semites than under Hitler himself. And so, Kastner's role for a few years during the war, before the uh, Nazi invasion of of Hungary, will be in the rescue department, or facilitating the transfer of people from very, very dangerous places to less dangerous places. Why is Kastner involved in this sort of activity? Because already in his days in Hungary, um, in in Romania, uh, in the 1930s, as a lawyer, he was involved w- with political fixing, bribe-giving. He was an expert at working the system on behalf of his clients and on behalf of Jews in the community who needed assistance. And so he has already a track record of interacting with hostile anti-Semitic governments, but getting something from them, extracting minor concessions here and there on behalf of people whom he's trying to work for. Um, in 1941, he moves from Klausenberg to Budapest after he loses his job, and the situation is getting pretty bleak. He lives in Budapest, 41 to 44, and is involved with the, the Committee of Aid and Rescue, which had been established by Joel and Hansi Brand. We'll speak more about them soon enough. During this period of about three years, it is claimed, and remember it's Kastner doing the claiming, that 25,000 Jews were evacuated to Hungary, thinking that that would be a safe haven from places that were already under Nazi occupation. But with the arrival of the Nazi invasion on March 19, 1944, everything changes and people need to go somewhere else they need to get out 
So one possibility is to escape to Romania. Not that Romania is such a wonderful place. Romania committed pogroms. And a quarter million Romanian Jews would get killed in the Shoah. Not always at the hands of the Nazis, but sometimes at the hands of the Romanians. But still, it's safer than being under Nazi rule in the Hungarian state. So, what happens between March 19th and the summer of 1944? Very, very bad things happen for Hungarian Jewry. It's the intention of the Nazis to kill every last Hungarian Jew. How many are there? About 725,000 Jews, about 65,000 former Jews or descendants of Jews who had been baptized or their parents were baptized. And so for the racial law purposes, they were marked for execution, but they did not identify as part of the Jewish community. So we're talking roughly about 800,000 Jews. And the plan was to deport them entirely to Auschwitz, where they could be killed at a rate of 12,000 a day. That was the ability of the crematoria to eliminate bodies. Well, when does this happen? It happens from May 15th through July 8th, and 437,000 Jews are deported, almost all of whom get killed. So for the, the Jewish community of Budapest, the role now is to try to find a solution to the problem of Hungarian Jewry. Those who were being deported were primarily those who lived in the countryside, and Budapest Jewry itself, for the most part, survived the war. And there may be people here from, the, from that community who, who, who lived, whereas they had cousins who lived to the north and to the west who didn't, because the countryside got deported first. So, well, you had said last yeah. week that the Polish um, plan was to concentrate all the Jews in ghettos, then empty the ghettos. Right. Is this the same as <coughs> in Hungary? No, in Hungary, there is no uh, time for ghettoization. This is all just collection points and, and railroad cars off to, to, to Auschwitz. There, 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 is, there are no middle steps along the way. There's just collecting, rounding up, and sending to death. They're running out of time. They're running out of time. They would defer the military action in case and get the Jews. Yes. So we're and we're going to see that plays an important role in the negotiations. At this point, do they realize they're going to lose the war? So the answer to that is the war is going very badly for them on the Eastern Front. And as of June 6th, there is a Western Front after the Battle at Normandy and D-Day invasion. So June 6th happens right smack in the middle of the, of the Hungarian Jewish deportations. But it's already going very poorly on the Eastern Front, and the Nazis are aware they have limited time to commit their atrocities. If they're going to do it, they have to act fast. Is, is that part of the scorched earth plan? Are you going to go ahead and, no matter what happens to you, you're going to go ahead and try and wipe out as many, uh, as many of the undesirables? So that, that was not the official policy of the Wehrmacht, but it was the, the, the unwritten policy of the, uh, the higher rankings of the, of the Nazi party and the SS, who ultimately controlled the Holocaust and would act contrary to the interest of the German army to kill as many Jews as possible. We'll see. The deportations were halted by the Hungarian regime under threat of, of war crimes prosecution once the word got out. Okay. Was there ever uh, a push from the military that why are we worrying about these Jews? Don't we have to worry about ourselves. So yes, there will be negotiations to improve the, mil the, the, um, the position of the German military by, by having them supplied with military-grade equipment and foodstuffs. It'll be a, a part of the negotiations for the saving of Jewish lives. Okay. So, Rudolf Kastner is interested in saving as many Jews as he can. But what means does he have at his disposal? Well, one thing is, if people are aware that they are marked for death if they don't do anything, it makes them more likely to do something, to find a personal solution to their problem, not a, a, a wholesale so, uh, solution to the Jewish pr problem, but to their personal situation. So what are some of those options? H passing as a Christian, hiding your child in a, in, a, in a convent, in a monastery, in a neighbor's home, running across the Romanian border, bribing the border guard, 
there are a, a variety of ways an individual could try to save themselves. And many thousands of Jews did save themselves in those ways. But you only do that if you think you have to. And if you're a Hungarian Jew who up until March of 44 thought that Hungary was a safe haven and you don't know about mass executions at a concentration, at a death camp, then maybe you're not going to pl- make plans to save yourself. You're going to be relatively passive. So the question is, when does Hungarian Jewry become aware that deportation equals death? This is a major controversy, controversy in the study of the Holocaust. Uh, but a key to answering this question is, when did information escape Auschwitz? And the answer is that there were the Auschwitz Protocols. The Auschwitz Protocols were published by the United States, by the War Refugee Board in late 1944, but they were based upon several uh, uh, distinct reports that came out earlier in 1944. Most importantly was the Verba Wetzler Report, produced by Rudolf Verba and Alfred Wetzler uh, on April 25th through April 27th, 1944. They had escaped Auschwitz a few months earlier, and they were able to compose in Slovak, then translated into German, then translated into English, uh, a 36-page report about the functioning of the death camps at Birkenau. And it was fairly accurate. And these were people who were not structural engineers, but they they nonetheless had a pretty good working knowledge of how the the technicalities of uh, of, of, of death were carried out. This report was made available to Rudolf Kastner. And one of the great criticisms of Kastner, which we'll get to in in his trial in Israel in the 1950s, is that he sat on this report and did not alert the uh, Hungarian Jewish community. That he he knew, and maybe a handful of uh, his inner circle knew, but he did not reveal this to the general public. And the further criticism is that he went to Klausenberg on May 3rd, a week after being aware of this information, and Klausenberg was only a few miles from the Romanian border, and the Jews there were 20,000 Jews only surrounded by 20 Hungarian guards and one Nazi officer, and could have easily overpowered their tormentors and run across the border, but they didn't know to do that because they didn't know what was going to happen next, because guys at the top didn't reveal information. That's going to be a very important criticism of, of, of Kastner. Is it true? Yes. Okay. So whether he did or he didn't knock on individual doors, there are other means of publicizing information aside from knocking on doors. And nothing uh, serious was undertaken to alert the general public. Yeah. Well, there's no Judenrat in, in Hungary, but essentially, effectively, a grand one. So. Did he hand over Jews to the, name, the Nazis? The, the names, locations, That is a debated point. It, it, the, the accusation do, it, it exists, but I, uh, so Ben Hecht's perfidy. The problem with Ben Hecht's perfidy, as we shall see, is that in 1961, when it was written, it was written as a historical work, but it's largely a historical. As Deborah Lipstadt has 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 pointed out, it was written by a man who cooperated with Peter Bergson uh, and was a right-wing Zionist, writing a work designed to attack Rudolf Kastner, but really it was a, a, a veiled attack on David Ben-Gurion and the Labour Party. Uh, it's just, you know, the right versus the left. Well, Rudolf Kastner, when he went to Israel, joined the Mapai. Yes, yes. And, and, the hammer and the sickle. Yes, yes. yes. So, uh, that's, that's the issue of awareness about um, the death camps. But now, what else is uh, Kastner doing? Well, he's involved with Joel Brand in negotiating with the Nazis over the possibility of blood, meaning Jewish lives, for goods, for war materials. Blut gegen Waren. Blood for good. Blood for goods. And Joel Brand was sent by Eichmann to areas beyond Nazi-controlled Europe to negotiate with the Allies over the possibility of making this deal. Now, the whole thing was an absurdity because he was sent from Budapest 
to Vienna, to Istanbul, where in Istanbul he was supposed to meet with Moshe Sharet, who was the head of the political division of the Jewish agency, to find out what the Jewish agency could offer in terms of securing the Allied powers' cooperation in this deal. But, Brand himself represents no one. Moshe Sharet, even if he could show up, represents the Jewish agency, which is a quasi-governmental organization of a few hundred thousand Jews in Palestine who have no power and no money to negotiate on behalf of the Allied powers who have no relationship to this whole process. So it was a, a scheme that was very far removed from the real world. Moreover, when Brand got... Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, when Brand gets to, to Istanbul, Moshe Sharet isn't there. He couldn't get a visa. So he met with low-ranking Jewish agency uh, uh, representatives in Istanbul, and they come up with some idea about what could be offered to the Nazis. Brand was told to report back to Eichmann that for $400,000, uh, um, they want 1,000 Jews to go to Israel. For a million Swiss francs, they want 10,000 Jews to go to neutral countries. And for 10,000 Swiss francs a month, they want a halt to the deportations. Now, is it realistic that the Nazi regime interested in the wholesale slaughter of world Jewry is for 10,000 francs a month going to halt deportations of Hungarian Jewry? Of course not. So why even make this proposal? On the theory that if you have to say something, you have to keep, the, you know, keep momentum. If you lose the momentum, the whole process is going to shut down and no one will be saved. Okay, so they absolutely would take money because after all, this is not the Nazi regime that they're negotiating with. They're negotiating with individual corrupt officials who will pocket the cash to enrich themselves and maybe act upon a gesture of goodwill. Okay, so in, in, after, after leaving Istanbul, Brand was told, you have to go to Aleppo. You have to go to Aleppo, and there you'll meet Moshe Sharet for further discussions with the Jewish agency. The problem with going to Aleppo is that the British controlled Aleppo, and Brand was concerned that if he went there, he'd be arrested on the spot. And what happened? He was arrested on the spot. He was taken to Cairo. He went on a hunger strike. Wasn't David Ben-Gurion the one that tattled on him? Uh, who, on Brand? Yeah, have him uh, It's possible. It's certainly possible. Um, but he was going to accomplish nothing. This was, this was, it was a foregone conclusion that he would accomplish nothing. Why? Because the British, unlike the Americans, are not interested in making a deal. The, the Nazis wanted 10,000 trucks for a million Jews. There weren't a million Jews left to be negotiated for. I mean, maybe there were a million Jews alive in Europe, but not in Hungary, and not who could easily be sent you know, to a, a neutral country. And they weren't going to get the 10,000 trucks for the simple reason that the British don't want Jews to survive the war. And this is a horrible statement to make, and this is the most controversial statement I'll probably make all year. But the British didn't want Jews to survive the war because that would mean a lot of people who have to go to Palestine since there's nowhere else for them to go. So Winston Churchill crushed the plan by Anthony Eden to uh, secure the release of some Jews in exchange for some militarily significant uh, material and foodstuffs and said, this is a harebrained scheme, this is a, uh, foolish, let's just forget about the whole thing. Even though some lives could have been saved, potentially, the Americans were in favor of it, the British, under Churchill, said no. Uh, they don't want to have to deal with stateless Jews who are interested in going to Palestine. But what was the, the Nazi interest in all of this? After all, it was an absurdity that could never happen. Why are they bothering with... Uh, leaders of a, a rescue committee out of Budapest to send somebody to a neutral country to negotiate with the allies or to negotiate with the Jewish agency okay so the answer is that Heinrich Himmler operating without the permission of Adolf Hitler is interested in securing a, a peace a separate peace with the western allies so that they can then take on the Soviets with renewed strength and push back the Soviet offensive and Himmler believed that this uh, was a reasonable possibility. 
that the, the real war was in the East with the Russians, the Western powers you know, could, could find some accommodation with, with Nazi Germany. This was always their belief. Uh, and uh, from the 1930s up until late, late in the war, that somehow England and Germany really didn't need to be at war with each other. So, I, I, I don't know that by, by June of 44, this was still a realistic assessment, but... But before that, before that, they, they were, they were high-ranking Nazi officials who really did believe it. Rudolf Hess went to England and flew his plane and, and said, let's make a deal. Uh, now, he was nuts. Granted, he was nuts, but he was not the only one who thought that. Okay, so this is a cover story. The cover story is you send people out to negotiate Jewish lives in exchange for military equipment when really it was just to get a, a feeler towards the Western powers about the possibility of peace. Okay. It fails. Nothing happens. Why is this at all relevant to the story of Rudolf Kastner? The answer is that, first of all, while Joel Brand was away, Kastner had an affair with Brand's wife. So... <laughs> so... Uh, uh, no, all right. And they were arrested by the uh, they were arrested by the Arrow Cross on May 27th. Uh, both of them, Hansi Brand and, and Rudolf Kastner, were arrested on May 27th and were released on, on June 1st. Their crime, I don't know. <laughs> okay, so what is what is Kastner now concerned about? If he cannot secure the release of many many thousands of Jews, then let him at least gain the release of a token number. Now, what is that token number? So history will record it as being 1,685 on a train, include, including 273 children, on a, on a train that goes from Budapest to some neutral place. Now, we'll see that it doesn't go to a neutral place at first. But who are these people? Who are these 1,685 people? And how do they get on the train? That is the subject of great controversy that is still fought over to this day because people uh, accuse others of having bribed their way on. And in fact, yes, there were ways of bribing yourself on. The, co the official cost was $1,000. Uh, actually, 1,000 Swiss francs, I think about it. Um, and the overall cost of the train was, according to the Jews, 8.6 million Swiss francs. According to Kurt Becher, who took the money, it was only 3 million Swiss francs. Now... Well, it's hard to say what it is in dollars because it wasn't all in currency. Some of it was in, in, in precious metals and gold, gold bullion, platinum. Um, yeah, 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 million, yeah. Okay, so what... Yes, yes, and that'll be a reason why Kastner is reviled by many people even if they thought that he did a good thing in saving Jews. Okay, so... Kastner is compiling this list together with the other members of the rescue committee and there is a strategy here that is a bit of a sinister strategy. The goal was to incorporate on the list leaders of the two most significant communities who if you ignored them would vigorously protest and result in the disruption of the whole plan. Who are those groups? Zionists and Hasidic Rebbe's. If, if you pacify the Zionist leadership and the, and the leadership of the Hasidic community of Hungary, then there is no other element within the Jewish uh, community that is going to say we were cheated, our group wasn't included, therefore this is an illegitimate list. Okay, so that's how... Uh, uh, Joel Teitelbaum gets on the list and that's how significant uh, numbers of Zionist officials all throughout Hungary get on the list, including the leadership in Budapest. Okay. Uh, the argument in favor of the morality of the list is that not everyone was a VIP, that there were plenty of orphans and widows and elderly and small children. Uh, there were plenty of people who had no protexia and just uh, the luck of the draw happened to make it on the list and their lives were spared. Okay, so that works in Kastner's favor to say the whole thing wasn't a corrupt process. Okay, 
Castner's family, of course, is on the list. They get saved. Is, uh, but that shouldn't surprise anyone. I mean, would you really suspect that he wouldn't put his family on the list? I can't blame him for that. But the, the blame that is leveled against him is that 388 members of the Klitsch community, of the Klausenberg community, were put on the train when that's a community that is only like uh, you know, 5% of the overall population of Hungarian Jewry, and yet it's 20% of the load of, of, of human cargo. Okay. So, so the money was in part from wealthy people who were who had spots auctioned to them, and other uh, sources of revenue were people who owed uh, a favor. Well, who had curried favor with Kurt Becker. Uh, well, I wouldn't say it's a Ponzi scheme in that nobody who paid money didn't get on the list. Well, they may have been left behind, but uh, if you paid, it was likely that your, that your life could be spared. The only problem is that certain people paid more than was reasonable, was more than was reasonable. Where happens to this train? The train leaves Budapest on June 30th. It's supposed to go to Switzerland, but it doesn't. It gets to Bergen-Belsen on July 9th. Why does it go to Bergen-Belsen? Bergen-Belsen is in northwestern Germany, and that's a long ride. Uh, to this day, it's unclear why that happened. It's possible, and along the way, at the, at the border, there was a fear that the train was going to take a right turn and go to Auschwitz, and certain people on the train were saying Shema Yisrael and trying to get off. So some survivors have reported, I'm not going to say which particular passenger tried to secure a private release for himself um, as he thought everyone else was doomed for Auschwitz. But the, the train gets to Bergen-Belsen on July 9th, and the passengers are stuck there for an indefinite period of time. They have no clue how long that's going to be and what their ultimate fate might be. They get off the train, they the train and they're in, they're in the camp. They're kept together. They're kept. They were. They were. They were kept as a as a distinct unit, and three hundred and about thirty some three hundred thirty something of them were released in August. The bulk thirteen hundred were released in December. So they were released to Switzerland. They went to the Swiss border where they were greeted by George Montello, who played an important role in the release of the Verba Wetzler report. George Montello, whose son I met, Enrico Montello, um, he was a Hungarian Jew originally and had moved to El Salvador and was the El Salvadoran like, deputy ambassador or consul uh, at, uh, at the embassy in Switzerland. He received the Auschwitz report in, eight, in May of 1944, and it was through his efforts that the Swiss press... Uh, revealed it to the general public, and there was a tremendous outcry, which led eventually to Admiral Horthy, the leader of the Hungarian regime, stopping the deportations on July 8th, 44, under fear that if he continued, he'd be uh, arrested after the war for war crimes and executed. So Montello's uh, activities played an important role in saving lives. He greets them at the, at the, uh, the border, at the Swiss border, and there's a famous picture of him greeting the Satmar Rebbe, shaking his hand at the, at the gate, at the fence. Okay. Montello was an Orthodox Jew. Well, I think he said originally, yeah, yeah. No, he's originally from Hungary, oh. and he then t- went to South America. So, uh, what happens now? The people who come to Switzerland, they're staying in lux- luxury hotels that were uh, converted into uh, essentially refu- uh, refugee quarters, where they stay for the remainder of the war, and everyone goes on their merry way after the war is over. Each one in his own destination. What happens to Kastner? Kastner moves to Israel. He, he gets to Israel in Fort... With the rest of the 1300? Uh, the, they all got released to, to Switzerland. Life was unpleasant, and there were 17 deaths, but there was no persecution. It was just unpleasant conditions in a, in a concentration camp. How did Kastner get to Israel without going to... Was he in a DP camp? Um, I'm not sure. He got to Israel before statehood. He got there in 47. I would imagine that 
it had to be through through uh, well through through VIP treatment because it wasn't easy to get to Palestine in '47 unless you knew somebody, but get or had money. Uh, he, the status of how much money he had is unclear um, because what happened to all the money that was used to pay for the train? So. Kurt Becher had the so-called Becher deposit. It was in six suitcases. The American army uh, recovered a substantial portion of that in May of 1945. The rest of it, no one knows. Uh, but, the, but the U.S. Army did recover uh, uh, gold, platinum, uh, you know, suitcases full of precious metal. There were no trucks. It never happened. Oh, there, there, there never were any deals. Okay. No, this was it. This was it. Did they know at the time that this was a one train deal? When you say they, who's they? Whoever we're talking about, both sides. Did the Nazis or the Jews figure that this could have been an ongoing process? I don't think anyone on the Jewish side thought this was an ongoing process. I, I, I assume they all believed this was their one chance and they took it. For so few people, yeah. Okay. Now, after the war, Kastner did a few things that were distasteful, which uh, get him in trouble in Israel later on. He testified seven times uh, in favor of Nazi officials who collaborate, who with whom he collaborated, including Kurt Becher, whom he testified about twice, and that saved Becher from going to on trial at Nuremberg. Becher, of all these guys, lived the longest. He died in 1995 as a rich man. He testified against Eichmann in 1961, but strategically, he did it from. Germany. He didn't go to Israel because he feared that if he did go to Israel, what would happen? They'd slap the cuffs on him and put him in the docket. So he testified, but from a distance. Um, Kastner also testified on behalf of. Huh? Well, the state of Israel wasn't in the in the habit of. Uh, chasing down Nazi war criminals to assassinate them. They chased on Eichmann to, 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 to put him on trial, and you know, may, who knows what happened to Mengele. But um, in general, they didn't hunt down every last guy. The Nuremberg trials, for the most part, and Soviet bloc countries executed people who did bad things on their territory. All right. Uh, the U.S. hired them to do um, scientific research. Well, yeah, yeah. So, now also, Hermann Krume, Dieter Wislenski, Hans Juntner, these were all uh, figures who, about whom Kastner testified and who got reduced sentences because of that, although Wislanski was executed in Bratislava in 1948, uh, despite whatever nice things Kastner had to say about him. Um, well, he, he got to live. He got to live and his family got to live. And maybe he got to enrich himself. What was that? I said there were Jews who lived in Hungary who I'm not of all the, the people Hungarians didn't get earned so much in the rest of Europe. Because of the end of the war, right? Yeah. Okay. Now, because, because um, Kastner did these things, he exposed himself to possible criticism in the Jewish state, where, you know, a significant percentage of the population by the early 1950s were survivors. I mean, uh, you can't walk the streets in early 1950s Israel and think that no one's going to know who you were. All right. in, so he, he goes to Israel and he works as a Mapai apparatchik. He runs for Knesset in the 49 elections and in the 51 elections, but doesn't uh, get a seat. He's low down on the list. But he is appointed as the spokesman for the Ministry of Industry and Trade. The, the minister at that time was Dov Yosef, uh, who also was the Justice Minister. In 1952... He had this, yeah. this history. Why did he put himself out there to run... Well, he, he regarded his actions as honorable. And plenty, so did plenty of other people. Yes, uh, others would say they were dishonorable and ignoble and, and, uh, and venal, but he thinks he did right. He did nothing wrong. Okay, so what happens? 1952, August of 52, Malkiel Grunwald uh, defames him. Who is Malkiel Grunwald? So, no one, no one cares about Malkiel Grunwald. He's a nobody from nothing. But 
he is a, a nuisance. He's a nuisance factor. He writes uh, a pamphlet, a, a, a bi-weekly pamphlet, known as Mikhtavim al-Chaveirai Notes about my friends in the Mizrahi. In which he basically is saying nasty things about all sorts of political figures in the Israeli system. Every week he's got a new target. And one week his target is Rudolf Kastner. And what does he say about Kastner? That, he's, that he, uh, he made a lot of money off of uh, trading Jew, uh, you know, Jewish lives and that he concealed information from the, the bulk of the community just so that he could save a few from which he profited and he saved his family. All the Averis that people want to criticize Kastner for doing, Grunwald puts in his pamphlet. So what happens now? You say nasty things about someone, well, you sue them. Well, so here's the story. Dov Yosef, who was the Minister of Industry and Trade and the Justice Minister, was of the opinion that there was no need to, for the government to pursue anything against Grunwald. That as a private personal matter, if Kastner wants to get into a legal imbroglio with, with, with Grunwald, so be it. But it's not the government's concern. And if Kastner wants to let it slide, so he'll let it slide. But Chaim Cohen, who was the Attorney General, disagreed and said, no, the state can't allow this. If a high-ranking official in a Jewish state is being uh, you know, uh, liable to, uh, as, as a collaborator with the Nazis, the state, as an institution, has a responsibility to react and to, to defend this man and say that it isn't true. To defend, not to investigate. If you investigate, you find out too much. If you defend, you, uh, you, you cover up, well, you preserve the integrity of the government. Okay, so the government didn't think that by pursuing the, this matter in the courts, anything bad would happen. At worst, they'd, they'd lose. But So losing just means you're back to square one where, they got, where Grunwald said nasty things about Kastner. If you win, you prove that Grunwald was a bad guy which he was, by the way. Later evidence suggests that he was a career criminal. Before he came to Israel, he lived in Hungary in the 1930s, and then he came to, to Palestine in 1938, and then he collaborated with the British against the Jews, against Aliyah, and was an all-round evil man. I didn't know that until preparing this lecture, that uh, there are strong accusations of collaboration with the British, and he was just a downright nasty and bad guy. Um, he, he was born in 1882, he died in 1958. He died the year after Kastner was assassinated, just around the time that Kastner was exonerated by the Supreme Court. So he lived to be 76, yeah. All right. Well, they go to court. It was supposed to last, the trial It was supposed to last just a couple of days. It lasted for two years. And all sorts of unpleasant information came to light. The trial was held at the Jerusalem District Court under the judge Benjamin Halevi. Benjamin Halevi. So, uh, Benjamin Halevi was a right winger, and later would serve uh, in the, I believe, in the Knesset under uh, as a Likud member or as a Gachal member. He was a judge, but he later left the judgeship and was a, a politician. But he was a right of center character, which plays an important role in how the outcome of the trial. The, the lawyer for Grunwald was Shmuel Tamir. Shmuel Tamir was a former member of the Irgun and an ally-slash-rival of Menachem Begin and who used his legal practice to defend right-wing vigilantes in Israel. So what do we see here? This trial is going to be the Irgun versus the Haganah all over again. It's the right versus the left of the Israeli system with Kastner just being a, like a patsy for Irgun in the Mapai, and Grunwald being a convenient instigator on behalf of the, of the right. Halevi comes down with a ruling in 1955 that says that Kastner sold his soul to the devil, and, uh, and Grunwald was right in saying all sorts of nasty things about him, and the libel suit was tossed. So what does the government do? The government invested all this effort in trying to save their man and try to show that the Jewish agency and the left of center Zionist leadership during the war years had acted honorably. But it didn't work out that way. So they appeal. But in appealing, 
it's it's very a very unpleasant thought that now they're they're having to defend further someone who has been accused of selling their soul to the devil. The general Zionists, who were part of the government in the early days of the state, and were you know consistent and reliable partners of of the Mapai in the leadership of the state throughout the first decade, they resign and they they don't vote to support the government in a no-confidence measure supported by the communists, by Maki, and by the Cheirut, by the right wing. As a result, the government collapses. And Moshe Sharet, the short-term prime minister, uh, in Ben-Gurion's uh, pseudo-retirement at Stavokair, he resigns and the government is over. So this cost Moshe Sharet his political career, basically. Uh, yes, he would be foreign minister for one more year, but he was at it out of power, out of action, basically, as a result of defending Kastner by going to the appeals court. In appealing, it goes to the highest level, to the Supreme Court of the state, where Shimon Agronat and uh, the five-member panel will eventually come to the conclusion that Benjamin Halevi overstepped his bounds and was wrong. He had erred considerably in judgment. Uh, and that Kastner had not sold his soul to the devil, that he had acted in good faith to save as many people as he could, thinking that uh, the financial angle was the only way that might work. So it's not that he was trying to enrich himself or that he was trying to uh, deplete the, res the, the resources of Hungarian Jewry. He was doing the one thing that he thought made the most sense, and he saved 1,600 people. Moreover, they argued that withholding information about the death camps was not a sinister act that cost the lives of many, many people, but rather that, who's to say, uh, an awareness of the death camps would have resulted in people saving themselves if they had nowhere to go. It was necessary to keep that under wraps in order to not undermine the rescue of the 1600. That's what the court concluded by a vote of four to one. Moshe Silberg, who was, was the one dissenting vo voice, said, no, no, uh, that, that Kastner had done wrong in cooperating with the Nazi plan of keeping its victims in the dark. That by um, facilitating the implementation of Nazi plans, even if it was to save a few people, he had, go he had gone too far. So by a, vo by a vote of five to nothing, they overturned one count, and by a vote of four to one, they overturned another count. However, the Supreme Court of Israel did rule that on the, the count of... Uh, Kastner acting horribly in testifying on behalf of Kurt Becher and other Nazi officials, he had done a, a, a grievous sin. So Kastner, although his verdict was overturned, only several of the counts were overturned. The issue of, of testifying for, for Nazi officials was not overturned. That was sustained. And that was, the, that was the, the mark against him in perpetuity. But he never knew any of this stuff, because he was dead. All this happened in 1958. In 1957, he was shot. So this is the most interesting part of the whole story. On March 3rd, 1957, outside of his apartment in Tel Aviv, uh, Kastner is confronted by Zev Ekstein, who asks him, are you Rudolf Kastner? He says yes, and then Ekstein shoots him. Who is, who is Zev Ekstein? Well, shortly after the shooting, Kastner was still alive. He died 12 days later on March 15th of his wounds, but he, he survived 12 days. Uh, and he was able to identify, or at least give a description of the shooter. And so Eckstein was arrested together with Yosef Menkes and Dan Shemer. These men were members of a right-wing organization as, uh, affiliated with Sulam, which was one of these radical right groups, like the Kingdom of Israel group um, that we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, uh, you know, post-1948 holdovers of the Lehi and the Irgun, who never reconciled themselves to behaving properly in a state, and who were just you know, causing trouble. Their leader was Yaakov Cheruti, who, at least in late, according to later evidence, was probably the man who encouraged Eckstein to pull the trigger. He was not there on the scene, but he was the ideological force behind the decision to have Kastner killed. Okay, but Eckstein denies that he killed Rudolf Kastner. Eckstein claims he fired three bullets. One was blank. One missed, and one hit Kastner, but in a non-vital organ. And that there was a fourth bullet that was fired by an unknown shooter from the other side of the bushes, like the grassy knoll. And, that's, and then at that point, Kastner groaned and fell over and was mortally wounded, you know, in what he would eventually die from. 
So who was this other shooter? This led to all sorts of speculation that maybe the Shin Bet wanted Kastner dead. Why? The, so why? Well, the Did argument they against... Huh? Bullets? What? Did they do any forensics on the bullets? I'm sure they did, but... Uh, I, I, I don't know uh, what that revealed because a lot of this stuff was sealed and never, never made public. Um, the argument against the Shin Bet's involvement was that Kastner himself was friendly with the head of Shin Bet intelligence. Uh, the argument in favor of Shin Bet involvement was that Kastner had become a liability uh, since he had been found guilty or he had been found uh, you know, to have done bad things during the war he had cost the government uh, its, uh, a no-confidence measure, and he was an all-around despised man. So, and plus, he may have known things that could, he could reveal. He could blackmail people. So that's the argument in favor of the government trying to bump him off. But we don't know. Okay, so here's the, what further complicates things. Zev Eckstein was a Shin Bet agent. Except who was who was ordered to infiltrate the right wing organizations, in particular Sulam. Except that under the, the uh, under the uh, intellectual leadership of Yisrael Eldad, Yisrael Shaib, Eckstein became enamored with the far right, and instead of spying on them, became one of them. The, by the way, which important historical figure did that happen to? Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler was supposed to spy on the, the, the National Socialist Party until he became the leader of the National Socialist Party. Um, so these things happen, where you have a transformation of, of, your, of your, uh, orienta- your ideological orientation. So, uh, interestingly, Eckstein, um, who's still alive, and wrote a book two years ago, which is not, was not very well received, called The Quilted Blanket, um, in which he says that if he were if he were if he were able to do it all over again, he wouldn't have shot uh, Kastner. He's still around. So right. So in two thousand and eight, there was a movie called Killing Kastner, which was a documentary in which Eckstein goes face to face with Kastner's daughter and granddaughter and uh, says, you know, I'm sorry, I, I shouldn't have done it. It wasn't the wrong thing to do. How did that movie come about? So the answer is that in uh, Galen Ross, which is a fake name, his real name is Rosenbaum, Rosenblum, uh, American Jewish um, a film producer, she was invited to, to uh, tape a 2001 conference at the Museum of Jewish Heritage on the, the topic of the assassination of Rudolf Kastner. And what was supposed to be just an academic uh, gathering ended up being like one of these violent confrontations between supporters and, and detractors, which you know can still happen every time we talk about Rudolf Kastner. There are people in the room who hate his guts and people who think he was a big hero. So that's what happened there. And Kastner's granddaughter, who, by the way, is a member of Knesset, um, uh, yeah, Merav Michaeli. Um, she, she, she got up and said, you know, my grandfather was a hero. And then other people started attacking her, saying, oh, he was a devil. Uh, is she from Yeshatid? Of, of, of labor, labor. So, um, uh, Galen Ross, who was there, decided this is a juicy topic for a movie. And so, to make, you know, make money. And so she makes the movie in which she gets Eckstein in the same room with the family, and it's a, not a love fest, but at least a reconciliation of some kind. That the guy says, I shouldn't have done it. But, but he never reveals who ordered him to do it, or wh- wh- who instigated the, uh, the shooting. Uh, but we think it was Yaakov Cheruti. That's the, 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 the speculation. Never went to jail? Uh, so they went, all three went to jail. But as we've seen in several other of the lectures this season, what happens when a Jew commits a crime of passion in the name of Zionism, Israel, or the Jewish people? They get a short term. So they were sentenced to life in jail, but only served until 1963 when Ben-Gurion facilitated a clemency and they were released. Um, so that, that's, that's typically what will happen with these sorts of cr- crimes. If he had died in 57, yeah. why did Oh, because the the matter wasn't about him. He didn't pursue the litigation. The litigation was pursued by the Attorney General of the State of Israel for the purpose of defending the good name of a government official. The fact that it happens to be Rudolf Kastner is a side point. And the fact that he's dead is a side point. Uh, It's that 
the government feels a need to clear its own conscience and good name. All right. Um, some of the other uh, the players involved, what, what happened to them? So Joel Brand, who had tried to secure the release of many, many thousands of Jews, million Jews for uh, this uh, blood for goods deal, he moved to, to Israel in 1944. After he was released from British custody in Cairo, he, didn't, he did not go back to Budapest. Now, some interpreted this as a bit of a betrayal of his community, that here he was the leader of the rescue community, uh, committee of Budapest, he went on a mission, and never comes home. But, can you blame the guy? I mean, he's in Cairo in the fall of 1944. Would you really, as a Jew, want to go back to Nazi-occupied Europe? I don't think so. So he goes to Eretz Israel, he gets involved in the Stern Gang and the Lehi, um, and lives his life in Eretz Israel until he dies at a relatively young age in 1964 while on a trip to Germany. Um, he, of all places, uh, he died in Germany. But, yeah. Uh, a heart condition. Uh huh. It brought to yes, it did, and Brand himself would say that he lived with the with the weight of a million people on his shoulders at all times, and that, that he could never um, get back to a normal existence because people knew what he had been involved with. They knew his association with Kastner, and his wife also the same sort of thing. She she died in two thousand. She lived a very a relative a pretty long life compared to the other ones. Uh, she died at the age of 88 uh, and lived in Israel her whole life, was, compared to her husband and to her lover, uh, a, a relative unknown, but still people who knew the topic knew about her. She testified at the Eichmann trial um, and you know, tried to live a, as normal an Israeli life as she could. But here she was, a woman who participated in the selection process of who got to go on the train, together with Kastner. Um, you know, people who, who survived often had a guilt complex that why did I get to live and others didn't? And sometimes that guilt, guilt complex was exacerbated by people yelling at them and, and accusing them of nefarious deeds. And other times, even if nobody's yelling at you, you just on your own feel the weight of history uh, and what happened what, and, and the, the role that they played. Okay. Um, Uh, I believe uh, it, was, it was in late December. It's the last. Kefalev. It's it was in in mid to late December. So it was around around now. Yeah. Okay. So one a, a, a final point uh, on this uh, ish, this broader topic. When we deal with the matter of uh, Jews who collaborated with the Nazis, it's important to make a distinction between those people who collaborated in ways like Rumkowski versus those who saved some lives. Meaning, guys like Rumkowski and others who ran Judenrat in, in Poland, they did things to satisfy their masters in the hope that keeping the master satisfied would prevent death but was not a, a means of rescue or salvation by any stretch. It just meant that you would hope to wait out the war and not die. As opposed to, in the topic for this evening, where there's the opportunity to actually spare lives and get them to a place of uh, safety, whether it's a neutral country or an allied country or it's Israel, that is a, a, a virtuous thing. Now, it might come at the expense of the lives of a whole lot of others, which muddies the, the, the moral calculus, but at least somebody got to definitely live. Yeah, but right, yeah. at what price? And Castro didn't only withhold information yeah. about the, the, the death camps, he actively 
promoted the myth that, that the Jews of Hungary were going to be resettled safely with their family. Okay, so... They, so, they so, say that it's yeah. completely yeah. oblivious, yeah. and people did not believe in Okay, so w- w- some of the historians in recent years... And this is what Yehuda Bauer tries to say, and I'm not a big fan of Yehuda Bauer, but um, he's one of the leading figures in the Holocaust historiography. He says you have to make a distinction between awareness and internalization, that people might have been told something, but it doesn't mean they either believe it's true or believe it enough that it affects their behavior. So knowing that in Poland, there are industrial killing centers is an important first piece of information that you would want to have in planning your possible escape. But not everyone who's told that believes it, right. and not anyone who believes it thinks that there are things that, 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 that it could happen to them, or that there are things... Yeah. Right, of course not. Of course not. So, so, so... My uncle was an Yeah. Uh-huh. That was his yeah. Right. So my point was was not to defend Kastner, but just to, to, to say that he 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 did bad things, very bad things, and he did them presumably, if you want to have a charitable assessment, so that his plan to save a handful of people would not be foiled. On the, on the premise that if the, if the SS found out he was spreading stories of death camps, they would cut out the, the business of the train. So that's a charitable assessment of him. So why do I say this business of internalization, that even if people knew, they wouldn't have necessarily acted upon it? Because you can't then blame him for deaths. You could just say that he failed to provide knowledge that could have led to the sparing of lives. And his, his, de- his descendants in defending him, get very frustrated when uh, people ascribe crimes to Kastner where he didn't commit the crime. He just prevented something good. But, but again, you know, Hungary, as you were saying, Hungary in 1944 is not Poland in 1942. Right. Yeah. And you're talking about 200,000 Jews yeah. who are literally two kilometers from the Romanian border. Right. 20 guards... So therefore, personally, I agree with you entirely. I'm just trying to present what the other side of the aisle will have to say about, about Kastner to defend him. I know many good Jews who, are, who regard him as a hero. I disagree with them. I disagree with them completely, but they have their point. And speak about what he did with Hannah Senna. She turned over the, her co-parachute so, to Gestapo. So <laughs> that, that was maybe his most egregious crime of them all. And I left it out only because there's a bit of confusion as to what he did, whether he really handed anybody over. Hannah Senesh's mother assumed that's what happened, and that the and later on in Israel testified about that, that the, the aid and rescue committee, a.k.a. Rudolf Kastner, ratted out the, the parachutists and got two of them killed. One survived the war. Um, but we don't really know for sure that's what happened. That's Hannah Senesh's mother's assessment of what happened. She's probably right, but I, I, we don't have real hard evidence for that. I mean, there was no knowledge of the death camps. I, I, I'm ignorant in this. No knowledge of the death camps before this information was made available from 1939 well, the, up through 1940. Well, the death camps begin operating in... Chemno begins operating in January of 42. Auschwitz begins operating, I think, in March of 42. Um, so in those two years, there was no knowledge at all? No, no, of course there was. There was awareness of um, industrial killing going on in Poland. What was unknown... What was unknown until until forty four was unknown until forty four were the details and the specifics of how that killing was carried out. The significance of the Auschwitz Protocols is that it gave really detailed information by someone who was there, and there weren't that many escapees from Auschwitz. There were some, but not that many. Uh, so this kind of information was I wouldn't say it's a chiddush in that no one had any clue, but it's. Uh, it's certainly novel information to people in Hungary, and 
very useful to them if they'd like to avoid getting killed, get, uh, you know, to escape deportation. So that's why it's it's relevant to this conversation in that people then could know, but also because the widespread knowledge of it resulted in the, in the halting of the deportations because it was politically untenable for the Hungarian regime to continue it, despite whatever pressure the Nazis put on them. All right, last question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. You said before that the um, community in Budapest was uh, basically untouched, unscathed? Well, no, the, the, not unscathed. The, many people survived. The percentage of survival was, was much higher than elsewhere in the country. Those people would tend to be more secular, I guess, than those people in the outer um, areas. The, the Neolog community in Budapest was the dominant community, yeah. Right. So, I mean, as some people have said that, you know, especially during the Holocaust, people like David Ben-Gurion and Rudolf Kessler, they didn't really care about Orthodox or Hasidim Jews. They, they really didn't care what happened to them. They just wanted to save themselves and create and build a socialist state in Israel. They had no need for people. Like so that is a very uh, uncharitable assessment of their <laughs> motives that I'm sure some within the labor Zionist establishment may have harbored that sentiment. But I would be very loath to say that was the dominant sentiment among the leadership of the Mapai Party. I, w- I, w- I think that's unfair to say. But, I, but I'll grant that some people did feel that way. You look at it with the Yemenite Jews, the children, and all that. I mean, there's yeah, yeah. plenty of evidence yeah. there. That's but there's a difference between cutting off pace and getting people deported to Auschwitz. Well, also telling them that their kids died. Uh, they were avarious by the, by the Labor Party, without a doubt. All right, last, last question. This is another subject, but do you know what happened with George Soros? But personally, what happened to him? Did you I, hear what he did with his father? We'll have to address that at a later time. All right. Okay. Anyway, uh, next week, uh, I'm not sure yet. <laughs>